Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Marion Gibson is Professor of Renaissance and Magical Literatures at the University of Exeter. She's written nine books on witches in history and literature. She came on the podcast to speak to us about one of them, The Witches of St. Scythe. In her latest book, she explores the global history of witchcraft accusations and executions through a survey of some of the most high-profile and significant trials. I wanted to talk to her about the first four that she had chosen. They are from Austria, Scotland, Norway and Virginia in the United States, as it now is. And they chart the development of demonological witchcraft beliefs between the 1480s and the 1620s. This is the period in which people didn't just believe that witches existed, they came to believe that witches made a pact with the devil, which put them entirely at odds with right-thinking Christians. It's this development and its manifestation in trials both by the church and the state, that concerns us today. And we start with a man who might be considered responsible for everything that follows. It's a delight to welcome Professor Gibson to talk to me about her work for her book, Witchcraft, A History in 13 Trials. Professor Gibson, welcome back to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you very much for joining us again to talk about witchcraft once again, except we're going to be talking about some different stories to those we covered last time. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you. So this is an exciting book in which you're looking at, I'm going to say the whole history of witchcraft, but it's the whole history of witchcraft really since it became a demological crime, because there are accusations of witchcraft in the ancient world, but this picks up from the end of the 15th century. And it's a fairly challenging task to take on. What made you think that this was what you wanted to do? And how ever did you choose the 13? It was really hard, actually. The whole book was quite challenging, as you say, because it's this 700-year range, which is more than I've ever tackled before. And I thought you were going to say, whatever made you think you could do this? Because there were times during the writing of it when I thought to myself, can I do this? (laughs) Will this actually work? So one of the things I had to think about was what I meant by which. And yes, I started with the idea of demonology. Obviously, there are lots of other definitions of which, as you say, including 
the time before the medieval and Tudor period. But I thought that if I started with demonology, it would give me the opportunity to talk about really the history of persecution, the history of that kind of binary thinking, which makes us set up one group against another and say, this group is on the side of God and this group is on the side of the devil. So that was what held it together for me. And choosing the trials became easier at that point because I was just looking for ones where I thought that binary thinking was working and there was some degree of reference to witches and magic. We're going to concentrate on four of those trials today, which aren't even all the ones you've got in the early modern period. But to do them justice, I thought we needed to leave them some space to breathe. And the first one, I don't think everyone will know by any means. We're going to start in late 15th century Austria. Could you introduce us to our protagonist and indeed our antagonist and tell us how you think we should characterise each of these people? So our protagonist, and somebody I want you to get on side with right away, actually, is a woman called Helena Schäuberin. And she's probably a merchant's wife. She's somebody who's really quite wealthy. She's quite well off in her society. She's quite, not exactly famous, but well known in her little city community. And she's accused by witchcraft of somebody who people might have heard of, and that's Heinrich Kramer, or Kramer, the writer of Malleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of Witches. So one of the big medieval demonologies, and one of the ones that people know quite well, because it was translated into English quite early, it was quite well known in the 20th century, so people have had a while to get used to Heinrich and his nasty ideas. And he accuses Helena, and chapter one is a showdown between those two, and I wanted readers to jump right in and start taking sides at that point. And she challenges Heinrich Karma from the start. Do you think it's this provocative, confident nature that is the reason for her being accused of witchcraft? Yes, I do, actually, in essence. I think so. Heinrich describes her as spirited and pushy. And it seems that he's looking to find people who oppose him from the moment that he arrives in Innsbruck. He's come to stage a witch trial. He's just done one in a small city just down the road. He's come to Innsbruck to do this again. And immediately Helena challenges him. Immediately she starts saying to him, I'm not coming to your sermons. I'm not listening to this. You're always just talking about witches. I don't agree with your version of what witchcraft is. You tell all these superstitious stories. I think you're a heretic. And that's a very powerful, very challenging thing to say to a Dominican monk who is himself an inquisitor, who is himself a finder of heretics. So she gets right on the front foot with him. And yes, I think that annoys him. I think he was looking for somebody to chase after, to accuse of witchcraft anyway. But Helena was an ideal candidate because she stood up to him from day one. And he quickly finds other people who are going to throw mud at Helena, doesn't he? He does. So he finds some people to start with in the Archduke's court. Innsbruck is part of the Austrian Empire, as it then was. And he finds people in the Archduke's court, the Archduke being the ruler of that area. So that really gives him an immediate foothold in the centres of power. And somebody who works as a cook, really quite a powerful figure, not just a person who makes sauces and turns the spit in the kitchen, but actually somebody who manages the Archduke's kitchens. He finds him and this man seems to have had some kind of romantic relationship with Helena in the past. And he says, I thought 
I was going to marry her, but then suddenly she changed her mind and I changed my mind. And then I went off and found a wife somewhere else. And we start thinking about what the nature of that relationship was and think that perhaps Helena turned him down rather than the other way around. There seems to be some jealousy there. And he and his new wife accuse Helena of witchcraft. And then other people start to chime in. So Heinrich has his group of accusers, the people that he wanted. He's invited people to come forward and some of them have. Now, I have to say, I read this with my heart in my mouth because, as you say, many people are familiar with the Malleus Maleficarum, but reason seems to triumph in this case. We have the bishop's official doubting the validity of Heinrich Kramer's procedure and Helena gets excellent representation, which is seldom on offer to those accused of witchcraft in subsequent centuries. But you hold that it was her agency that was crucial nonetheless. Can you explain how the trial plays out and its outcome? So the first thing that Helena does when she's put on trial is she defies the inquisitor. So he is judge and jury in this. This is how inquisitorial courts work. So he brings forward the accusations, but then he also sits in judgment on them, which is a position that a lot of people will find deeply uncomfortable. And he starts asking Helena questions about her life. He wants to find out if she's a heretic and he wants to find out if she's a witch. But he asks her the question, were you a virgin when you married? And she refuses to answer that question. And other people who are in the courtroom, powerful men who have been called in to witness this trial, people from Innsbruck, some people from the Archduke's court, they chime in and they say, that's not a proper question. What are you doing? You haven't drawn up these questions in advance. You haven't shared them with the court. This woman is quite right to object to being asked about this very private matter. And from that point onwards, Helena has some agency. If she hadn't refused to answer that question, I don't think things would have gone the way that they did if she'd been intimidated, if she'd found the threat of torture overwhelmingly frightening, as indeed she might very well have done. If she'd caved in, if she'd confessed, things would have gone differently. And she didn't. And I wanted to give back that sense of her agency in this story. So she challenges him. She starts to roll back his case and he's forced to go out of the courtroom. The other powerful men in the room say to him, you must go out and draw up some proper articles, some proper questions. So he's forced out of his own courtroom. He's forced to write some of this stuff down and that takes him a while. And in that period, from somewhere, we're not sure where, we're not quite sure how, Helena finds herself a really good lawyer, somebody who's experienced in ecclesiastical courts, who has university law learning, and she comes back in with this man, and from that point onwards... The case is really very much more open than you might have expected it to be. And Heinrich is immediately on the back foot with this lawyer pitching into him. I hope it is dramatic. Yes, I found it fascinating to research because, as you say, most trials, particularly with a person like Heinrich Kramer in charge of them, are basically just somebody being forced to confess and being tortured and victimised and ultimately executed. And I thought it would be good to start with one where that isn't the story where it shows the reader that it is possible for people to resist it is possible sometimes to recover the words of some of these women the actions of some of these women and give them their story back if you like and i'm personally fascinated by the sense that agency can be present in silences as well as in what women say that seems really interesting to me i like that too i would have liked more of her own words 
But of course, I know that these are seldom recorded for women in historical periods that far back. So I was very content with her silence and with the few phrases that we know she did use, because I thought that was more than enough to show us a really strong personality. Now, she gets off, but these trials do have a devastating consequence, don't they? They do. So we know Heinrich Kramer because he writes Malus Maleficarum. And he has not written that book before this trial. He writes it afterwards. And it felt to me increasingly as I researched the trial that it was more and more clear that Malus Maleficarum was a response to Helena standing up to Heinrich. The immense emphasis in that book on misogyny seemed to me to be probably something that Heinrich had anyway, but something that also responded directly to his disbelief that this woman stands up to him on behalf of a group of other women too. She's on trial with six other women. And I think his sense of shock and outrage is one of the drivers of Malleus Maleficar. It's something that gives that book its immense nastiness, its immense kind of petty bitterness it feels like it's about what happened in that courtroom and him ultimately being thrown out of the courtroom his case being thrown out and these women walking away free I think he was bitterly disappointed I think he was angry about that this trial gives us an insight into the origins of Malleus Maleficarum that I think hasn't quite been seen in that way before no, and it shows us it's this doubling down, in other words, as you say. And it's very important to the next case that you look at, which is a century later. We're now in Scotland. This is a case I happen to know well. We're now in Protestant country. And it's interesting that the words of a Catholic monk have a bearing here. There are actually fewer differences between witch trials and Catholic and Protestant errors, and I think people might suspect, as we'll see. But you do draw attention to one important one, the institution in charge of the trials. Can you explain? Mm. Yes. So the first case, the one that we've just talked about, is an inquisitorial court. It is literally the Inquisition conducting that. You have the inquisitor as the judge and jury. You have a system which is not adversarial, as you see in later judicial systems. But an adversarial element is nevertheless omitted once Helena goes and finds herself a lawyer. But once we move over to Protestant Scotland in the 1590s, we've got something completely different going on. Scotland is quite a disorganised legal situation at this time. People who are accused of witchcraft can be tried in various courts. So the local magistrate can try them, the church courts can try them. And in this case that we look at, the case of the people who come to be known as the North Berwick witches, who people might might know about. The king himself gets involved in this trial. So in essence, the witches are being tried by the king and his privy councillors. And that again lends a very different flavour to this witch trial, I think. Yes, I think that's absolutely right, because what seems to be crucial is not just that the king is involved and that he's bringing ideas back from Denmark, Norway, as it's called at the time, now we call it Denmark, when he goes to get his new wife, but also that beliefs in witchcraft intersect with James's theories on kingship. They do. I think it shows quite nicely that the forum in which you hold a witch trial often determines its content, because when we're looking at an inquisitorial court in chapter one, it's all about heresy, it's all about devils, it's all about 
sex. It's all about the kind of things that you expect a Catholic inquisitor, a monk, to be interested in. Switch to the royal court in a different polity, a different century. And it's suddenly it's all about monarchy. It's about the devil versus the king. It's about James's obsession with absolute rule and with his own power and entitlement. And it feels like that will help the reader to work out, I think, at the beginning of the book, that one of the things we're dealing with is not witchcraft as a fixed, nicely defined entity, but witchcraft as part of that binary thinking. Witchcraft is something that people invent based on their own concerns and shaped so that the witch is a direct enemy of theirs on each occasion, whoever they may be. So how did the witchcraft suspicions start in this case? So they start with some healers in essence and that's another theme that comes up throughout the book a couple of times as it did in my previous book The Witches of Sadozith as well. I got quite interested in the idea that some of these witch figures are actually healers, ordinary people who work within their community with magic and medicine and are seen as quite an asset to their community until the point when somebody decides to accuse them of witchcraft. So it starts with these two healers, Annie and Gilly, who are working with some of the nobles in their community, some of the local land owners and the families of magistrates and gentlemen and so on, and offering them advice. And sometimes it's advice about childbirth, so they're selling charms in essence to help people with labour pains. Sometimes they seem to be doing other kinds of magical or medical service or healing. But once they are questioned as witches, and one of them is tortured, unfortunately, with thumbscrews and starts to confess, understandably enough, once they're starting to be put under pressure like that, they start confessing to witchcraft. And I think what they start off by confessing is stuff about harming their neighbours, which is where these things often start. But, of course, once you get the church, once you get the magistracy, once you get the king involved, the things that they're confessing to start to shift. And eventually they end up by confessing to an attack on the king himself. He's gone off to Denmark, Norway to fetch his new wife. They've been involved in terrible sea storms. Their journeys have been interrupted. There's a concern about whether they'll even make it back to Scotland, never mind whether when they do, they'll be able to carry on with their marriage and have a line of royal heirs and it will all be fine. So as soon as the suspected witches end up in that courtroom in front of the king, they start to be portrayed as traitors. They start to be portrayed as a threat to the Scottish nation. So you can really see that case snowball over the course of about 18 months, which is how long it takes the trial to work itself through. Starts off being about one thing, ends up being about something quite different. James himself questions and judges the suspects. And you say in this interesting line, flexing normal court processes in response to a powerful authority can lead to mass injustice. Tell us more. I find that over and over again when I look at these cases, and it did become particularly obvious once you looked over a very broad range of time and place. I think it's something that happens at Salem as well, which is one of the cases I do deal with later on in the book. It seems to me that people have legal systems set up which have a certain amount of checks and balances they're by no means all fair and really if they were we wouldn't see witches being charged within them would we but there are a certain number of places where people can intervene there are certain rules of evidence there are certain procedures that are established 
But the problem is when people see witchcraft as an exceptional crime, as something to be tried slightly outside the rules, potentially, or something terribly secretive and slippery, which they might have to flex their procedures to really get at the truth of, that's when they start saying, oh, it'd be absolutely fine to torture these people, wouldn't it? Or, oh, it would be absolutely fine if somebody's confessed to let them off. And if they hold out to decide that they are guilty and to execute them. I think we see over and over again that sense that witchcraft is seen to be outside normal procedures. And that's a very dangerous place for the suspects of witchcraft crimes to be. Yes, I mean, Jean Baudin calls it an exceptional crime because normally you need two eyewitnesses, but the devil is going to hide the evidence. So in this case, the methods change. So I think you are absolutely right on that. Our case involves, among others, a woman called Agnes Samson. And when she is brought to meet the king, she leans into her witchiness, you might say. She tells the king, for example, that she knew the very words he'd said to his new wife on their wedding night. I wonder what you make of that. Can we allow for the possibility that she might have believed herself to be a witch? Yes, I think we can. And perhaps particularly because of that origin that she has in healing magic. I think it's quite likely that some of the things that she ends up telling her local questioners and then her king that she's done, I think she probably did do them. Yeah, I can imagine her doing the kind of rites that she talks about. And she gives us, or somebody gives us, a couple of the spells or charms that she uses. And they sound like the sort of pretty standard thing that, that people accused of witchcraft in this period and before often say so they're versions of christian prayer they're versions of the creed they're versions of the kind of poetry that we recognize from other circumstances i think she probably thinks of herself as some kind of christian healer some sort of mystic somebody with magical powers somebody with a direct line to creatures like angels possibly even fairies something of that nature so i think it's quite likely that she and possibly gilly too the other woman involved regarded themselves as being witch-like, as having magical powers, although not necessarily as being people who practice bad witchcraft and attack their neighbours. Now, Gilly Duncan and Agnes Sampson and many others are executed by burning, although some of them were garroted first, if that makes it any better. But the man who was named as the instigator of the witch's attack on the king and queen was not. How come... Shocking, isn't it? So the Earl of Bothwell is one of James's key antagonists in this period as King of Scotland. Bothwell is a potential candidate to succeed James, should he be swept out of the way in one way or another. He's also a powerful insurgent force in a country that's already been torn apart by factionalism, both political and religious. James has lived his whole life in the shadow of people like Bothwell. He's been kidnapped, he's been threatened, he's had attempts to assassinate him made. No wonder he is highly sensitive to people like the Earl of Bothwell. And as the witchcraft case develops, the suspects are encouraged to start naming powerful people who have supposedly motivated their attack on the king. And they come up with the Earl of Bothwell and say, oh, it was him. We met with him and what we tried to do was assassinate James so that the Earl of Bothwell could succeed him and this of course comes across as a very plausible story to James who has these thoughts on his mind anyway however the Earl of Bothwell 
unlike these poor, ordinary village women who have nowhere to go, don't have any resources, can't flee from this horrible experience that is happening to them. Bothwell, because he's a rich, powerful lordling, ups and flees the country and is not tried. Later on, when he comes back, astonishingly, things seem to have blown over. James has moved on <laughs> and he's perhaps decided that actually Bothwell could be a powerful ally of his instead of a powerful enemy. So when Bothwell is put through a show trial, if you like, he's acquitted. And all that sacrifice and all that misery that those people, particularly women, most of them were women, went through in order for James to work out his issues about absolute authority and his own power and his own role as the father of future monarchs and all of that was apparently for nothing because... It transpires that when it comes right down to it, he's willing to acquit the Earl of Bothwell, who was supposedly the lead conspirator in this witchcraft attack. There aren't really words to express what I'm feeling in a polite way on my podcast at this point in time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let us move to our next trial, which is of the Vada witches of Finnmark. I didn't know this case until I read Kieran Millwall Hargrave's recent novel, The Mercies. And the trials in Finnmark were directly connected to those in Scotland, weren't they? Can you detail the link? They were. I like that about the start of the book because the first two cases are quite far apart and they're intended to be compared in various ways and contrasted. 
But the second and third case, the North Berwick one and the Vardar one, are literally linked together. And that's because one of the people in charge of this Norwegian witch trial is a Scot, John Cunningham. He comes from a place just a few miles up the road from North Berwick, where Annie Gilly and all the other people involved in the North Berwick trial would have been very familiar to him. He's born at the right time. He's born in the right place. He's got knowledge of that. And he seems to take with him a number of the obsessions that James and others put into that trial so that when he's appointed governor of the Finnmark region of northern Norway, working on behalf of the Danish-Norwegian king Christian IV, he starts looking for exactly the same traits in the people he accuses of witchcraft. So he thinks they must be obsessed with governorship, they must be obsessed with kingship, they must be obsessed with the sea, they must be causing storms, just like the North Berwick witches. Maybe they even think of themselves in maritime terms. And words like admiral travel between those trials. So we get people like Annie and Gilly being accused of being admirals of the fleet of witches that supposedly sails to, to attack James. But then we also get that surfacing again in northern Norway, where one of the witches confesses to being an admiral there. And I think you can literally see the fingerprints of the witch finders in both of those trials. It crosses from Scotland to Norway, and the story remains in many ways the same. There's also an important intersection with the colonisation of the indigenous people of Norway. How do the Sami come in? There is. There's a new element here in the Norwegian case, and that's in contrast to early modern Austria and early modern Scotland, the Norwegian settlers are living right next to indigenous people from the Arctic Circle. So the Sami people, the people who live right the way around the top of the globe, if you like, as it's conceived in this period. And one of the first people to be accused in Finnmark is a Sami woman. Her name is Kari or Karen. We're not entirely sure what her name is. It seems to have some resonances in Sami culture and some in settler Norwegian culture, people coming up from the south. And she's one of the first people to be accused. And I think that might happen to her, partly because she has some of the magical knowledge and the religious baggage, if you like, of her people. She seems to be somebody who maybe works as some sort of diviner or claims to have some sort of foresight, some sort of knowledge of remote events. So when there's a shipwreck in which somebody she's supposedly antagonistic to is involved and he is drowned, she seems to know that he has drowned before everybody else in her settlement does. And so I think there's something really interesting going on there, again, with that binary thinking about who's on your side and who's on the other side. You don't just get the idea of gender being involved. You don't just get the idea of political conspiracy being involved. Here in chapter three, you get the idea of race and indigeneity being involved as well. So the Sami people are constructed as witchy and magical and very much those people over there who we don't like, we want to work against them by the settlers coming in. And I think that's a big factor in that witch trial. Yes, and these are definitely themes that come up elsewhere in the book. Can I ask you a question here about methodology? When you're relating the trial of Kari or Karen Edistato, as you say, we're not quite sure what she's called, the storytelling depends on using evidence that was given at trial and then you're recreating it into a narrative that is removed from the circumstances in which it was given. What were the challenges and potential pitfalls of this approach? 
Yeah, they're manifolds, aren't they? I feel a little torn about them. I think I owe it to the people involved to tell the best story that I can. And that means using all the evidence that I have to its maximum, attempting to squeeze it as hard as possible and extract as much as possible what I believe to be the voices and viewpoints of the people involved and also every type of circumstantial detail that I can possibly squeeze out of it as well but also I know I'm running a risk and I know that I am stretching I am adding at times to the story in order to make the story work one of the things I've tried to do is show people where I might be doing that so allowing them to see something of the original source and make a decision about how they feel I've used it and then pointing them to that original source if they want to go and look at it for themselves but giving them the sense that what I'm trying to do is it is quite polemical I do want to restore these voices where I possibly can but I'm constantly aware that it's my voice really and it's often the voices of the accusers that I'm using to construct the story of the accused and that there are dangers there had it not been a trade book I could have had an entire chapter where I just worried about that but I didn't think it'd be that readable <laughs> and I think readers should probably go and look at the original sources <laughs> what happened to Kari I'm afraid this one doesn't end well she's convicted she swum basically as people will know one of the things that used to happen to witchcraft suspects in some places was that they'll be thrown into water to see if they floated or not and northern Norway was one of the places where you would be tried by a water or day if you floated you were found likely to be guilty and put on further trial and if you sank there was the horrible prospect that you could drown even if people tried to pull you out which they usually did Kari floats it's terrible she's dragged out of the freezing water this being northern Norway remember and dragged back on to the land and then she's tortured she's put on the rack in order to get more confession out of her and of course she confesses this poor woman and she's executed she's actually burned to death which is just about the most terrible thing that you think could possibly happen to a human being you include this heartbreaking detail that actually she tells the people who are asking her questions that what the devil had done was stretch her limbs precisely what they're doing to her Yes, I think she's getting that from the experience of being racked. Imagine your indigenous Sami herder who has spent your life trekking across the wide open spaces of northern Norway with your neighbours. You know, you can get on well with all of them, but they don't invent and build machines to tear your body apart and torture you. What on earth must this woman have made of this? No wonder she thought that the people who were torturing her were devil-like. No wonder she imagined that would be just the kind of thing that's Satan would do to you if he existed. Yes, it is a heartbreaking detail, isn't it? And I started to look out in other trials for places where that kind of thing happens. And I think I found it in several, actually, where the actions of those among the witch finders who are physically torturing or mentally abusing the suspected witch are attributed to the devil. That seems perfectly fair on behalf of the accused. Let's pick up on one other Varda trial, which is Kirsten Sorosdata, because it speaks to the way in which the ideas of the interrogators and not just the interrogated feature in the witch's confessions. 
Mm. She's the person who confesses to being an admiral of the fleet of witches. The witches are thought to sail across the sea, causing sea storms and shipwrecks, and they're thought to fly through the air as well. And as one of the ways in which she talks about this kind of magical travel, magical transport, she uses the kind of vocabulary that the people torturing her and questioning her used about themselves. John Cunningham was literally an admiral in the fleet of the Norwegian king and had fought in wars in that capacity. He's a sailor, he's used to the sea, so I'm sure that they had discussions about exactly how the witches sailed, how the witch organisation, as he imagined it to be, worked, what the hierarchy was like, and curiously enough it emerges that it's pretty much like the hierarchy of the Norwegian navy, funnily enough. I think she's another great example of this kind of ventriloquism when the accused people end up simply talking about the concerns of those who are accusing them in very much the language of the accusers as well. And I suppose, it, again, being a historian, I can't help but saying it goes to the sources. We don't know the extent to which what we have written down is a long in leading question from the interrogator to which the accused in the process of being tortured just says yes. <laughs> Yes, I think a lot of this is, oh, well, you were the admiral of their fleet. Yes, I was. Did somebody play the flute and drum at the Sabbath? Yes, they did. I think sometimes the detail that we attribute to the accused is actually that which is put in by the accuser, which again goes back to your question about the sources. What do we do with this? Whose detail is this? Whose voice is this? And you have to make a judgment, a decision about it as a storyteller, what you do with that detail. And how far you say to people, I'm not really sure where this is coming from. But I think this instance is one where you can quite legitimately get the reader to ask some questions about whose story it is, because quite often it is the story imposed on the accused by the witch finder. But there is a filtering process, isn't there, by which we can extract certain details. So they might say, did someone play the flute? And she says yes, and they say, who was it? And it's that moment where she's got to bring someone to mind that might tell you something about her circumstance. Or I remember Linda Roper giving an example of one of the witches she looked at in Germany and talking about where you hid money from servants and what activities she was doing, actually butter churning, which comes up in our next case. These sort of things speak to the actual world and life of the accused witches even if all the things being laid on top of them don't necessarily yes they do and those details are wonderful aren't they because you do feel that you are getting into the world of the accused person if they're telling you about the process like butter churning yes that the accuser particularly if he's a powerful male governor figure will have absolutely no knowledge of <laughs> then it's going to be the real lived experience of the accused isn't it and i love those moments when we feel like we're hearing something of their language and the knowledge that they have is coming across in their confession however it's framed however we may want to say but you're not actually a witch at least we can listen to what they have to say about the domestic duties that they know about their experiences of child rearing and nursing the words that they speak in charms when they try to comfort somebody or heal a sick child I think those moments are really important now you consider 13 trials in your book we only have time today for four those who want to read more will have to turn to their copy having acquired it, of Witchcraft, A History in 13 Trials. Our last one is America's first accused witch, Joan Wright. People might not have heard of her before now. And 
she learnt about witchcraft when she was working as a servant in Hull in northern England and then imported these beliefs to Virginia. And here butter churning comes in. And when I saw that, I thought, ah, you know, when you get to butter churning, it's one of those things that's difficult to do. It often goes wrong. So you often think someone's cast a spell on you to make it go wrong. Keith Thomas wrote about this years ago. That's not exactly what's going on here. What has she learnt about witchcraft in England? Yeah, I really liked Joan's story. I liked telling it because it was a transatlantic one. So we got details about her life in England and then we got details about her life in America. And we hear about the stories of her English life, her time as a dairymaid butter churning in Hull, when she's questioned in America about whether she's a witch or not. And one of the things she says about her past life is, A, I'm not a witch, but B, I do know what witches do. And she tells us this story about how when she's a dairymaid in Hull, she's employed in the house of this employer who is quite a superstitious and powerful woman in her own right. And this employer is convinced that she's being bewitched and that her household processes are being bewitched. And she gets Joan to do this right with the butter churns. A woman comes to the door of the dairy of the rich woman's house and Joan, there churning away in her dairy, has to suddenly clamp down the top of the butter churn and hold it down and her employer is delighted when she's done this and sweeps out of the room and leaves them to it and the woman who's come to the door won't go away and Joan is perplexed by this why won't this woman go away and when the employer comes back she says to Joan you can take your hands off now and the woman who's come to the door kind of reels backwards and says my hand was trapped in the butter churn I am indeed a witch I have been bewitching your butter and you trap my spectral hand in the butter churn so now it's released I can go and I'm terribly sorry that I've bewitched your butter and I won't do it again so Joan says that she learns from that experience how witchcraft works that witches have these sort of spectral bodies that they can seep into your house and damage your domestic processes and the way she uses the story is really to claim that she herself is a kind of unwitcher she's somebody who's worked against witches in the past she's not a witch herself why would her community suspect her of that in fact she's a good and holy person and she worked as a midwife as well she's just right in that kind of category of person who I've been interested in for some time who is both a midwife and a healer and has some really interesting knowledge of magical processes from the point of view of being somebody who she says in the past has combated them rather than being involved in them. And here we have a context of what you call an enormous awful fact, the precarity of the early Virginian settlers. Can you explain? Yeah, Virginia is not a comfortable place to be any more than Massachusetts is later in the Salem trials. And again, this is because of indigenous people being those who have been displaced by the settlers, driven from their lands, abused in a variety of different ways. They are there waiting on the outskirts of the settlements in which people like Joan Wright live to come in and sweep the settlers back into the sea. And they do decide to do this. People may or may not know the history of Virginia. There's a big attack on the communities of early Virginia on the East Coast. 
and the native people come and they try to destroy them, they burn them down. Hundreds of people are murdered and they're killed because they're colonists, because the indigenous people have decided that it's time to drive them back and get them to go away. And I think one of the things that haunts Joan Wright's trial continually is this terrible sense of threat. The communities of settlers become quite militarised. They become very harsh and very autocratic with their own people. And that's partly because they're facing this enormous challenge from outside of their society. And again, I think we see that binary thinking. If you're not on the side of the settlers, you must be on the side of the indigenous people who, of course, they construct as pagans and devil worshippers. You must be a witch. So Joan finds herself in a very difficult position as against almost everybody else in her community and beyond it. And I think that's part of the reason why she's picked out as a witch herself. And what's interesting is that Virginia has adopted the 1604 Witchcraft Act, introduced by James VI, then James I of England, with that demonological definition of witchcraft as conjuring or invocating evil spirits. But Joan's case in September 1626 bears none of these hallmarks. It was really interesting, that, and you're right to pick up on it, because what I'd have expected and what, in a sense, would have shaped the story in a different way would be that they would bang on about demonology, and they don't. And I wondered why that was. They're sort of sensible, practical settler types. What is it? They just don't go down that route. We don't know the outcome of this case, and I want to commend your brave decision in including it anyway and forcing us to live with the discomfort of that. But what do you think happened? I think she probably got off in some way. I think that's where I came down in the end. There is a prospect that she might have been executed. But my reading of that community of people was that they were quite practical. They needed women in that community. They literally went to the trouble of shipping in shiploads of women in order to be the wives and mothers of present and future colonists. And I think Joan would have been useful to them for that point of view. They were also sufficiently concerned about trying her correctly that they deferred her so they had one trial day and they didn't have all the witnesses there so they deferred a further section of the trial to another day so she got two days in court which was quite unusual and I thought that showed at least that they were interested in the possibility that she might be innocent she does quite a clever thing we don't have a lot of Joan's words but we do have some and when she tells a story about somebody who'd accused her and has said yeah, if you're not guilty why don't you sue the people who are trying to accuse you and prove your self-innocent and Joan just says God forgive them and she tells that story of herself to the court I think she tried to position herself as quite a religious person and maybe she indeed was quite a religious person so I think with that little stack of evidence there my hope at least is that she was acquitted or if not acquitted that she was fairly likely punished there's nothing in the records to say either way but there is also no reference to a witch being executed and that really gave me hope for her To end then, your 13 cases take us all the way through the English Civil War and Salem, the French Revolution, the Second World War, modern day Southern Africa, even the trial of Stormy Daniels. And obviously, when you're looking across 700 years of history like that, you're comparing trials of some who may have believed themselves to be witches, those who were protesting their innocence, at least until they were tortured. It's a tricky thing to do. How did you seek to avoid a historicity? Mm, it was really hard. I tried to hold to the idea of the witch as structuring each of the stories and that kind of demonological definition of us and them. 
so that it became a history of persecution and particularly persecution with if you like a magical flavor so that in each case somebody was referred to as a witch conceived of themselves as a witch was conceived of as a witch by others and I think that's the thread that holds it together it felt like a high wire act at times yes I found myself questioning are these really the same thing can you really tell the story of these two people in a way which is genuinely connected and I thought in the end that I could and I thought that it was very much an attempt worth making because our society is haunted by the idea of witches, isn't it? We hear all the time people saying they've been subjected to a witch hunt or you know, people identifying as pagans who regard themselves as witches or we see witches in popular culture. And I thought it was very much worth connecting those early modern witches to the ones who exist today around us, whether we think those people are in fact witches or not. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this book. I'll remind people of the title. It's called Witchcraft, A History in 13 Trials, and it's out now. Thank you so much. Lovely. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just The Tudors. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built – a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age. A house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.